Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Warrior U podcast, proudly presented by our parent company, Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. I'm your host, Bram Connolly, and this then is my show. A massive shout out to the podcast sponsors, Ironside Coffee and Gym Equipment Specialists, Aussie Strength, and of course, not forgetting Special Operations Research and Development, Sword Australia, for all your tactical equipment and clothing needs. Righto, let's get on with the show. Craig Ball. Welcome to the Warrior You podcast. Thanks, Brennan. Great to uh, great to be on. Pretty exciting. Yeah, I've um, had a few people encourage me to, to get on them and um, to get busy with it. So this is the first. Yeah. You need to really exploit these different avenues, especially in the sort of field that you're in. Yeah, very much. Um, I've been looking at a couple of different avenues, what we're uh, ways to go, communicating the messages out through on the interview format. But um, I think podcast is probably going to be one of the most enjoyable. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you, who you are, your background, and then I'll unpack that. All right, great. Um, so my background, I guess, um, from a military point of view, uh, started in the late 90s. Uh, I first joined the military as a reservist and um, – being a reservist in Sydney in the late 90s, there wasn't an awful lot to do. Um, so unless you wanted to actually take something on a little bit more seriously. So as soon as I was able, um, I went across to one commando company as um, and did an, uh, an open induction day that they used to have there. Um, I then went and did all my basic courses um, and then found myself in um, 2000 on Select 4 Hour which... Uh, it was something I totally didn't expect. Um, I thought I'd be on a – I thought they had reservist uh, selection courses, but it really was a great opportunity. I didn't get through the first time. Uh, I had another crack the second time and was successful. Mm. Um, and from there, I I kind of regretted my decision after that. I was um, – East Timor was coming up in 2001, and I could have gone across with that, and I didn't. Um, I thought I knew better. I thought I had other ideas um, of stuff that I was going to do in the civilian world, and um, I always regretted it. Um, mm. And then I hung around one commando for a couple more years and um, decided uh, I then over time due to a couple of bad decisions and a relationship that probably wasn't the most supportive, I left the, the reserves um, and continued on my way. And um, I found myself at a recruiter's office back in uh, 2004 six yeah uh, in 2006 and decided to go full-time uh go all in and i've done a bit of work with uh, sigs before i got out and um they seemed fairly normal so i decided to become a radio operator huh. um plus at that age i was <laughs> yeah plus at that age i was um in my um in my early 30s and i thought to myself well you know probably not as fast as as, as good physically as i perhaps was to keep up with young grunts and doing that sort of thing so um I chose SIGs for that reason as well. Um, little was I to discover later on down the track whilst carrying 60 kilos around my back in Afghanistan that I probably would have, might have been a lighter load that I've chosen to be a yeah. um, uh, And at that point, what else I'd been doing at the same time, uh, back in uh, 2001, I, got a, I found myself a role as um, developing myself as a professional speaker. Yeah. Um, I'd... Yeah, I networked my way into working for this entrepreneur who um, was, I think at that stage, it was probably worth about $50 million. And he had a um, marketing company that um, had its own health and beauty products. Mm-hmm. Um, and my yeah, my job was basically to develop myself as a professional speaker. And he really liked the fact that I had a military background. And um, I worked for that guy for the next two and a half years, yeah. um, getting out there, just 
grinding it out, uh, doing the Rotary Club circuit, and um, going to every course I could, and just basically developing myself. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, when that sort of finished up, I um, I ended up picking up about sixty gigs in high schools. Speaking to um, senior high school year ten to year twelve, um, I ended up turning that to about a hundred different engagements, and um, was constantly just pushing, trying to get the uh, the word out and about what I was presenting about, which in those days was mental toughness, um, and based it around the fact that you know hadn't really um, I'd never been a natural sport gifted sporting person, and I, I, I you know but you are a big, selection you are a big you are a big strapping lad though you're not exactly a wallflower. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, my message was pretty much anybody could do it, and it kind of resonated really great with the high school students. You know, because yeah. you get people who just because they're not the top sporting person and that sort of thing. And I said, look, I never passed, it, never made it into anything sporting wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that at this point in my life it just captured my imagination, and I worked hard and, and was successful. Well, there's so much there um, that we can. There's so much there we can sort of talk about. Let, let's go back to selection though in those reserve years and then you found yourself on the four-hour commando full-time reinforcement cycle it's a it's a huge undertaking isn't it for a reservist i don't think they understand that if, if you want to be a reservist and you want to be in special forces there's a there's a long glide path ahead of you that's it it's a massive shock to the system um and i i, I really believe after my, my experience in both reserve and um regular forces that um a reserve special force uh, is very hard to maintain. I don't know necessarily that it can be well maintained. I think that the way it's working these days when a lot of guys get out of um, full-time service at 2Commando or SASR and want to keep their hand in, then it, it works really well. Um, but I think if you're a reservist, you really need to, to – and you want to take that step, I think you really need to go full-time um, to, to fully appreciate what it means. Yeah. Um, it's a very different beast. Yeah. Because you know, your mind's always in – your life back home when you're a reservist, I yeah. found anyway. And what was, was the, hard to fully commit. What what was the reason that you weren't successful the first time around? What what um how did you fall short? Was it a mental or a physical um aspect? Um I thought it was uh, mental to a degree, but also I had so little experience at that point. Um my basic experience was um back then I had two week recruit courses. I'd done a two-week recruit course, a two-week IET course, and some weekends away. Um, whilst they did some really good uh, build-up training to get us through the barrier test, um, yeah, there wasn't um, a lot more. I got there, and I really felt like I was way out of my depth. Yeah, right. And so then the next time that you were there, the preparation, the mindset, completely different? Yeah, most definitely. I um, I went away. I found um, – Back in those days, Hans Fleer was the um, was the camp commandant and the I guess the OIC of, of selection, and this guy was like the most inspirational figure I'd come across to that point in my life. And yeah. I went away. I went to the defence library and got all the books out that he'd recommend, like Raven's theory of special operations and, and all that kind of stuff, and, mm. and read up everything I could to the point I could. We had a, a written exam, which I smuggled a version of that out. And basically learned it so I could stand up in the you know the middle. You wake me up at two o'clock in the morning. I could recite all the answers. I was really awesome. committed, very strongly to it. Yeah, he had a profound um, effect on, that, on my life as well. Hands flew. Oh, I could only imagine. Mm. Um, it must have been such a different game when it's your, your full time career and having somebody like that around you. Um, I later uh, caught him, caught up with him when he became the honorary colonel, and um, at the unit, and it kind of. In a way, it kind of made me a little bit sad because I thought a lot of the young guys coming through had no idea who he was. And to me, this guy was everything um, in my career. And it was also good at the time I was on my second rotation through um, through TAG uh, when, he's, when he passed away, as sad as that was. But it, it allowed me to be able to go down to his funeral and pay my respects. So that was a pretty awesome thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and meeting his... Yeah, yeah, it was. There wasn't. I don't think there was anyone from one two six other than the older guys who really knew him and that sort of stuff. And I was, I really pushed to try to get down there. So that was awesome. Was it a different? Was it different for you being commando qualified and being a signaller and then looking at that from that aspect as opposed to just being an operator in in the teams and then being on tag as a as a signaller? Um, yeah, I think so very much. Um, I saw it from a completely different point of view in a lot of ways. Um, I've always felt because I guess I started as a grunt. I always felt more 
um, akin to the grunts and I feel I communicated better. And when I look back on my service now, um, my better mates or the ones that I'm, I'm a lot closer to were all grunts. Yeah, right. Um, I just got it. Yeah, my, a lot of my uh, background in, in the civilian world was having some sort of a customer. And so as a writer, I considered the grunts to be not only like my brothers, but my, my customer as Mate. well. So we worked very hard to try to ensure that they were best looked after. That is an unbelievable that, – that just sums up, I think, 126 and the other units that are in those supporting roles. But also the, the special forces operators, they have a responsibility to be supported – and I think sometimes they forget that. Yeah, um, they were. I looked, you know, I was, dude, I had some pretty bad, uh, I suppose, fatalities as well that occurred um, when I was uh, in 126. I was, um, was with Alpha Company, um, uh, November platoon. Um, and in 2009 on MRE, we lost Mason Edwards and then on, on mission rehearsal exercise, uh, I should say. Um, and then in 2010, we had the helicopter crash in June. So um, yeah. lost three other mates. So that's unfortunately that, that kind of defined things a little bit for me as it, it impacted it so strongly. But um, it was I, I saw it from a, a completely different point of view than I imagine somebody who perhaps uh, had just become a SIG and thought, oh yeah, I'll go special forces and then I'll I'll try that out and, and try to get to somewhere like two commando. I think it, I think I had a very different view and I knew a lot of the history, which really helped. Yeah, that helicopter crash in two thousand and ten, I think, defined two commando regiment because they they bounced back from it they showed resiliency and i think that resiliency came from that that um the leadership from the commanding officer all the way down through the company commanders and and november platoon commander as well i think that you know as hard as it was for everyone up and down that chain of command they they really did keep their eye on the mission and you know it's interesting because the rocket two commando regiment for for me signifies if it if you if you die it's it's almost i don't want to say you're jealous of them because we're clearly not bloody jealous of being dead but it's like your name is forever on that rock and it's a, it's a I, I guess it's small you know it's a, it's a sort of small slither of light at the end but yeah it's an intri- but it is part of the resilience isn't it yeah, very much. I think that it, it um, behooves all of us to do their legacy justice. Did you just use um, behooves? With- did you just use the word behooves, Craig? I did. I did. It behooves <laughs> us. I love throwing in curly ones like that now and again. <laughs> um, but it, but it, it's on us to um, mm. do their legacy justice. And I think every time when you're there or if you're lucky, you know, those of us who are lucky enough, and I haven't been back for an Anzac Day, but when we get back for ceremonial things and, mm. and stuff of that nature, um, it just it's that reminder we're living to honour them. Mm. Um, that's certainly how I felt post get, getting out um, with uh, with respect to suicides. Yeah, I was quite close to Ben Chuck. I'd been deployed with him previously. I'd done some sniper work with him over the years, and um, yeah, and that was a shock for me actually. Of all the of all of the deaths in Afghanistan from our unit, from four hour commando and the second commando regiment, that was the one that sort of. Um, hit home to me the most because he was such a young, dynamic, good-looking, strong, fit, you know, just a just a guy that everyone liked. And, yeah, that did um, knock me for six a little bit. But um, but we live a life worth living because of that. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd service the sniper guys with um, updating their radios and, and knew them uh, fairly well, not as well as some of the other guys, but, I, um, you know, obviously – had immense respect for what it was that they did in such a tough job. But to having worked as closely as you would have with him, yeah, I can really I can really empathize with you and understand, you know, what you're talking about. Yeah, it was the epitome of um, professionalism. So m- moving on, so you're now well you are a, a, a professional public speaker. Um yeah, that's true. I kind of have, have come back to that uh, after getting out of defense. Um I was always, I suppose, whilst I was in defence, I was always looking for ways um, I could actually do that, um, uh, ways I could use what I'd learnt in a in a way that sort of paid respect to what I'd done to a degree. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I tend not to, I tend not to market myself as well, not necessarily ex-military first, or um, that just happens to be part of the picture, if you like. Yeah. Um, and. Ever since I got out, I was lucky enough in 2012 to discover um, a type of consulting that I do now. I've done for the last 
five and a half years called yeah. Change Management, yep. which um, is part of Project Services. I mean, you would have come across that probably plenty yeah. of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those out there that perhaps have never heard of it, um, we work on projects with the people side of things and um, do everything from um, counselling, coaching, public speaking. I like to joke that we're also the stand-up comedian of the consulting world sometimes as well. Um, and then once I once I got to a point with that, I decided, okay, um, and as I was moving through develop, establishing myself in that career, I was also looking for ways to exploit my uh, public speaking or to get that out there more. Yeah. And, um, yeah, in the last couple of years, I've just decided it's time to kick it on and create my own opportunities. So. so, Craig, give me a – I mean, obviously, I'm a public speaker. I'm not, prefer, I'm not particularly good at public speaking. I, I do a lot of preparation, and I have a niche area that I work in, which is leadership and consultancy mm-hmm. for, for leadership. But um, oh, and obviously the podcast. But give me a masterclass, mate, because you are revered and and get paid quite well to stand up and not only entertain but have knowledge transference. So, give me a masterclass on public speaking from the first moment that you know you're going to get a gig. Um, how does how do you prepare for that, and how do you set yourself up so that the audience can get the best possible experience from you and your um, trade? Um, well, first of all, what I like to do is I like to do research on my audience. So I like to find out, okay, um, who are they? Um, what's the industry? What are their challenges? Um, what do they face? Uh, and what are some of the key ways that people can can do, uh, can, can pull out of my material that may be specifically suited? Uh, where possible, and it's not always the case, um, I'll actually um, go and meet some people that I may be presenting to. One time I got to speak to... Um, a company called uh, SciTech, which is the prep pap test company, and they were uh, it was a really good medical uh, medical industry, I suppose, or um, pharmaceutical industry company. And I actually got to spend a whole day with one of their sales reps, going out and um, and learning what they did. So I don't think you can skimp at all on research on who your people are. Um, typically, I do five, three to five people, I'll call them up. If I can get away with 10% of the audience size, that'd be great, but you just don't always have the time. Um, I'll come up with a list of questions, um, ask through those and, and look for ways that that um, traces back to what I'm going to present about. And um, then I will um, uh, and then I'll just let the conversation flow and just see if there's anything they want to talk about. Uh, challenges, uh, things that stress them and worry them, that kind of thing. That's a, that's a really big thing. Um, and I think in the early days when I was learning this craft and learning how to go about doing these things, that's what I, I valued the most from the things that I picked up from groups like National Speakers Association and, and the people that I was fortunate enough to get mentored by was that, was do your research, learn who your people are. Um, and often when you get there to do a presentation, uh, the, the people that you spoke to on the phone are come to go, hey, man, you, you call me and, and we have that chat about uh, teamwork and they're really happy. That it's that works for you really well because it also sets the crowd up. So if someone in, in their office gets called and you have this conversation, they'll go and talk about that in the office. And then when you get there, there's three or four people that are really keen to see what you're going to present about. Yeah. And you factor in a reference to one story or one example and uh, to them, back to their story, and that they just love it. So you're feeding back. You're making them a star, and that's a really important thing. Um, but I think really when it comes to – to public speaking and and doing it on a professional level, uh, removing your ego from what you, you're doing is probably the most valuable thing you can do. Right. It really is. Uh, yeah. On the – it's really quite funny. I do this kind of naturally now, but on the way, usually a day before, I'll do some voice work as well, so I'll um, do some warming up in my voice. When I first got started, um, I got sent to NIDA for two days, and uh, the guy that I was working for spent nearly $2,000 um, in voice training um, for me, and now to the point when I go to present somewhere, I just get into this this relaxed state. It's one of my favourite things to do is to share with an audience stuff. Oh, really value like it pays great, and that's really important. But I really value um, their time. I take their time incredibly seriously, um, yeah. and I work very hard to ensure that their time is spent well, and they've got stuff they can take away where they go. Wow, that was that gave me something. Um, yeah. And often it's listening and often it's finding uh, parallels between their lives and, and what you're sharing and, and what your experiences are. Yeah, and if, and if they're paying good money to hear you talk, then you, you have a responsibility to make that the best possible experience for them that, that they can possibly have, right? 
exactly right. Um, and it's important to have fun. I like to – I've been and seen people recently uh, constantly um, believe in training and you can always learn something from people. Uh, and I've been doing a bit of, of going and checking out people's courses lately, uh, particularly with setting up the seminars um, in the new year. And um, uh, one of the things that I think that you've got to be able to take away, some people don't like questions. I like to start with questions of them and encourage them questions throughout. And the whole thing is a series of questions because that way they get their questions answered. They get the bits that they want. Um, you can share the – and I first picked this one up when I was speaking in high schools to kids. I turned the whole thing into questions. And the stories, you can tell a story in a series of questions. Uh, and that once you start really working with that and having fun with your audience, you, you, your material's there. You're going to get through your materials. It's no big deal. But you, you actually engage with people. It's the ability to – get right down with their issues, engage with them and have them um, truly feel as, hey, this person's listened and this person really cares about um, about who I am and what my problems are. And do you break up the, the talk that you're going to give into its component parts and then break the parts up into other parts and then have a like a – a, a beginning, a middle, and an end for each of the each of the stories that you tell in that way, like that W diagram that we would be um, familiar with? I'm so glad you brought that one up. I try not to break things down too much. Um, and as far as beginning, middle, and end, when I, there's, there's that throughout. I mean, I'll break it into chunks. So there, a chunk might be, say we're going to speak for an hour, I might have three chunks of stuff to talk. So um, each of those will be their own individual presentation. Um, and one of the things I learned years ago, one of the mistakes that we get taught, and if you show up at Toastmasters tomorrow, someone to learn about the public speaking, which I think is a fantastic organisation, they're probably going to tell you, tell them what you tell them, tell them and then tell them what you told them. And I'll tell you what, that's important uh, and it might be tried and tested. It's a great way to put people to sleep. Uh, the guy that mentored me, he talks like this, explain what you're going to tell them in a sentence or two, reinforce it with a story, anecdote, um, statistics, but you've got to be a lot more creative with statistics, and then sell. So ERS, explain, reinforce, and sell. And if you can create them around that and you sell it back to them based on their benefits or the benefits of what it is, um, you can never go wrong. And it, it's just a really simple way to bring in something. Um, but I'm now working with some other approaches for longer learning sort of stuff. But um, that's actually a pretty good one. So explain, reinforce, and sell. I like it. I do like it. Yeah, it's, um, that was a guy um, who mentored me called Doug Maloof who back in the day had been the most experienced speaker, also the most successful Australian professional speaker that day. I was very fortunate. He gave me six months of his time. Um, another guy I really like was uh, Blair Singer. He wrote Sad Dogs, How to Build a Business Team That Wins and, and books like that. His stuff about questioning is second to none. It just it really engages people. And it can really bring you onto their side very, very quickly. Because that's, I mean, that's the things I picked up studying psych at uni is that there's a gap from when you're in front of them until whether they choose to accept you or not. And if you can bridge that gap, you've got probably a couple of minutes. You can bridge that gap really, really quickly. Um, you've got them. You've got them in your your, your pocket, I suppose. And you're really, um, really pairing with them, building that rapport as fast as possible. This is the ultimate thing, I think. My understanding is that. In order to do that, it's almost like, hey, here I am, and here's this story. And, and, and it's a story where these people need to put themselves in your position and start visualizing that the, the guy or girl standing up in front of them could well have been them. So for me, it's like, hey, I want to tell you this story about year eight in high school when I sat next to Rachel Bishop and had butterflies. And every person in that room has sat next to someone in high school and gone, oh, I really like this person, you know? Yeah, it's a really good technique. And I I, I think the important part is – Just a shout out to Rachel we, Bishop there if she listens to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, if you – I mean, you know I know this quite well. When you get up and present about something, particularly something with a military – uh, background like a military story yeah. people are going to often make the mistake and it's a common one for all say audiences make mistakes so i think audience make mistakes but it's a common assumption from people some parts of your audience who you they'll hear you telling a story that's about you and they will naturally assume oh they're just going to talk about themselves now um to the point in the early days when i was doing a lot of freebies getting um grinding it out and i told a presentation that one group loved and the next group i spoke to thought i was just talking about myself wow there to do 
yeah, oh, it was it blew me away how their re- their reaction and yeah. You know, so now one of the best techniques I heard do this, and I use this a bit also with story. Whilst you can build context, and building context is so important. And, and what I'll do is I'll say, look, whilst I may share with you stories, experiences in life, um, but also in the military, um, I want you to understand that those experiences that I had weren't about me and the point I'm sharing them is not about me, it's about you and all of you in some small way were there when I was there. You know, we were there serving our country. You are our country. This is what has occurred in the process of serving for your safety and every single one of you matters to what we were doing. I want you to know that. And Yeah, I've used something similar where I I say to them – you know, every, I want you to know just before we start this talk that every single decision you ever made in your life has brought you to being in front of me now and every decision that I've made has brought me to being in front of you. And so now that we're here, let's share some of those decisions. Yeah, I like that one. That's I use something similar yeah. um, with respect to, to the seminars where I, I say to people, I'm a big believer in manifesting mm. and Somehow through my seminars, I have manifested you and somehow through your need to improve or sort of problem out or whatever that is, through your capacity, you have manifested me to be in front of you tonight as well. Bloody hell, that's deep. And so I think it's, yeah, I think very much. And I think it's a it's very much a pairing. Um, at, and I, I like the decisions. I think every decision you make is really important too. Yeah. Um, I think that, that speaks quite a lot to, to getting pe- people on your side. So you've had two crowds um, that are – that have been completely different with the same talk. I mean, I gave a, a, a keynote the other night in front of some of my Warrior You listeners, for Christ's sake. They paid to be there. And I was looking back at them going, Nice. I was looking back at them going, are, are you guys, like, are you getting anything out of this? Like, I'm here, like, bearing my soul to you. And then, and afterwards they come on, like, oh, that was great. You know, thanks very much. That was amazing. But all I saw was them just glaring back at me. But they weren't like that at all. Isn't that strange? It's a beautiful experience to have, too, isn't it? I mean, I mean, one of the one of the things that occurs for us is that we get so used to what, what our lives have been, and we, you consider them so regular and run of the mill. And particularly when you're humble about them, is that sometimes you can be like, "Huh, I just did this thing, and everybody isn't everybody like this." And, and you realise that people have had vastly different experiences, yeah. and they really look up too. I mean, I met a guy the other day who said, "I've done this at uni, done that at uni," and, and we were chatting about a qualification. He said, but you, you've been in the military, man. That's like times about 100. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. I just showed up and, and did my thing. But yeah. it's, it's really funny. And the other thing that I pulled out of what you said as well, um, particularly when people are, are rehearsing, I encourage people to rehearse to a blank wall. If you can deliver your pre- best presentation to a blank wall, you can present to anybody because particularly with a male-dominated audience, you're not going to get anything back. I mean, the old lessons used to be, um, present, do your best presentation, present in front of a mirror, but that teaches you to look for a response and you're there banged out and you're basically feeding yourself. I quite often do leadership training in front of miners and by miners, I mean gold miners, hard rock underground miners and these are hard people to connect with and one-on-one, they are awesome, warm considerate, brilliant Australians, right? But you get these guys in a group and and they are tiger sharks like around you as in a life raft. Like they will give you no quarter, not even an emotion. You know, you could say the funniest joke in the world and these dudes will just look at each other and then look back at you like, you know, like you've never, ever said the right thing to them. How do you deal with that? That's my favourite type of group. Um, I've done, as you know, a lot of work um, with rail workers um, in the blue-collar space, uh, particularly the guys. Um, Shout-out to the guys who work on the XBT um, in um, in Sydney, our diesel fleet that, that goes out to the country areas. Um, I've done a lot of presenting to blue-collar space, and you've got so much that they want to know about. The military thing works beautifully well, um, and really when it comes to engaging, being as, as human as you can and, and making it, Realizing that you know, sharing stuff about them with them. Sorry, sharing stuff about you that uh, shows vulnerable. Uh, I'm on this thing now with with my mates that I work with and, and people I get fortunate enough to mentor. 
where I'm really telling them to be as vulnerable as vulnerability is strength and uh, taking the time to listen to them as well. So, hey, good on you, good on you, Skype, for, for sucking. And um, Craig and I are going to continue this call by using the telephone. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. So, solutions to a high tech problem. So the um the rail guys, you've worked with the rail guys, and you've had some of the similar experiences with me with them just looking back at you with blank looks. Um, tell me about them. Um, they were they were a good group. I initially went out there um, on one of my first um, my first change. Uh, roles, and we were rolling out probably one of the most unpopular uh, software programs you could ever do a program on, which is SAP. Um, yeah, right. And, and we were just briefing them, telling them what was going to come and some of the benefits, and there was a guy there on the first or second briefing I did. We were briefing him at 2 p.m. in the afternoon at 10 at night, and uh, this guy, I think it was a 10 p.m. briefing, and he started, and he said, I've been here 28 years, and I've seen this, and I've seen that, and I was like, at the end of this briefing... You are mine. I'm going to go and engage with you. You've obviously got things to share. I'm going to learn from you. And so that night we ended up talking to 12 to midnight. Um, and ever since then, that was the, he was one of the, the linchpin people that got me that got me in with everybody. Yeah, right. Um, so you you yeah. you used a leadership principle, which is to find out the micro leader, and then you created influence with that person, won them over, and that person was winning over other people on your behalf. In, in many ways, yeah. Um, well, how that one uh, ended up playing out, uh, we would talk all the time every time I got in there and um, to follow up with people. And then within a couple of – he said to me one night, he goes, what else do you do apart from all this? I said, oh, I'm a speaker. I run a resilience program. And um, within about a week or two, uh, the business systems and compliance manager uh, approached me and said, look, would you be interested in running a resilience program for us? Um, uh, we've got uh, help." Health Rail Health and Safety Week coming up. Um, we want you to run it twice a day um, for the week. Um, and this is like a two-hour session where I get really – I work very, very hard mm. for my um, for my guys when I've got this session working. And I had to show up every morning at 7 uh, to their start of work meeting and, and sell them on the idea of coming. And the first couple were a little quiet, so there was nobody was forced to go. And by the end of the week, the sessions were full. Tell me about um, tell me about um, those resilience sessions. Like, what, what what do you do to help teams become more resilient? Okay, um, I share with them. I take them through a process, um, which is effectively Stoic philosophy and how it pertains to dealing with your emotions. Yeah, right. Um, and it's the oldest form of cognitive psychology. Anyone that's out there that's a veteran is going to see a psychologist, which I highly. Uh, advocate for, I, I guess it's like regularly myself, you'll probably come across what's called CBT or Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Yeah. Um, what what I share with people is REBT, which is older than that. It came about in the 50s um, and it, it's a fairly short-term therapy. It's designed to be six weeks total if you're getting looked after by someone, but it works beautifully for a, a presentation workshop where you're actually taking people through a simple model to deal with their emotions and to clear out the clutter um, so yeah. that you can effectively grow through um, difficult situations yeah, and right. support one another. Yeah, and so what, what are the component parts of it and how do, you, how do you connect with them so that they take things away and actually learn those systems? Um, so I start with um, talking to them about um, unconditional self-acceptance um, and that then fosters con- uh, unconditional self unconditional acceptance of other people as well. So it's about in society where society today, particularly Western society, is rife with conditions. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What, what equates to self-esteem. And I'm yeah. staring self-esteem in the, in the face and telling him it's a load of crap. Um, so I'm, I'm there, I'm just trying to help shake up their concept of how they view things and the fact that we've got to distance ourselves from 
um, our successes and failures and who we are as a person. Who we are as a person and, and our acceptance of ourselves shouldn't be dependent because on these successes and failures because often things don't work and it's no fault of ours at all. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's, it's, it, it can be any one of a number of things. Sometimes it's completely out of our control. But to be, And beating ourselves up for that really doesn't help. Yeah. Um, and so I take them through a simple activity and I get them to um, have some jokes about it and I tell them, look, uh, can everyone just you know, put your hand over your mouth and tell me the first thing that you notice? And I wait for someone to say they've noticed their breath. And I said, congratulations, you've, you've mastered this. I said, that's all you need to be able to accept, accept yourself is to, to, to breathe. Mm. And you get a lot of people, not these guys so much, these guys are pretty good, but you get a lot of uh, so-called you know, uh, high-flying types of people or people operate of their ego and they go, this is not good, this doesn't work for me, I've got to be number one. I go, well, you can be the number one at what you do, but you can, you are just okay. And you've got to distance yourself from boosting your ego because it just pulls you down. It really does. And so... Mm. And I think it's um, a testament to, to the quality of the instruction you're giving if you're getting, you know, guys and girls, I guess, um, in, in that... Um, employment to warm to you and, and to do things that are probably you know they probably see as very new age com- compared to compared to the culture of that organization that's so true and um that's why early on i'll, I'll share the stories about stuff that's happened uh, i'll talk to them about you know uh i've been to more funerals than anybody my age should um you know one of the one of the things i've i've shaken up recently i'll, I'll share with them look if you hadn't met me all these years ago, this would have seen this person uh, struggling, uh, you know, scared of, you know, the future and that I made my, my um, who, I, who I was going to be and my true potential might not be realised. I then mm. talk about how I found the military full time and, and after seven and a half years, I, I have the great privilege of calling people who will otherwise be my heroes, my friends, but mm. that privilege comes at a cost and uh, talking through the different... And that, people just warm to that. They, they, they warm to... The fact that you are sparing part of yourself, um, but the fact that we, um, as hopefully resilient people that have come out the other side with a positive um, yeah. outlook on life, mm. you know, can stand in the heat with that. And I find on an emotional scale, and I'm, I'm, I can get fairly empathic with this, um, I, can, I can feel the emotion in the room after a while, and when I am hitting the right note, like my emotion drops into that, and I feel that on an emotional level, and you're just buzzing, and you, you can just go. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's cool. And what's the biggest crowd you've ever engaged with? Biggest crowd I've engaged with is a thousand people. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, heaps of fun. Back in the old high school days, I, I got called up, hey, you come out to speak to high school. And I love high schools the most. I would still do them if I could. Um, mm-hmm. And because you're shaking these minds, my God, it's just, it's just incredible. And I showed up at this school, and... Um, they, they walk me out into this auditorium and there's a thousand out there. It was awesome. Uh, I, I reached out. You're not going to believe this. I mean, I get paid to do this for a living. You get paid to do it for a living. I reached out to Banksia Park International School, my high school in South Australia, and, yep. and you know, told them I'd come there for free and talk to their year 12s about mental toughness and resilience and moving forward and crickets. Never heard anything back from them. And I, and I hit them up for two years straight. So, so shout out to the administration at Banksy Park High School, you bunch of knobs. And, you know, it's just, just incredible that there's this guy that's had these profound experiences through combat, you know, Distinguished Service Medal for Leadership, runs a successful leadership resiliency company that, that says to you, I will do this for nothing because I want to help the year 12s there understand that they can be amazing at whatever they choose to be. And they've got this resource and they don't even go for it. So, yeah, anyway, whatever. Um, if, any other yeah. school, if any other schools want to reach out, let me know. I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Um, the thing with, with high schools that I found, and I love them dearly, some of the people I was um, mm. given the opportunity, they will challenge you in ways you never thought possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the best experiences was probably the last one I ever did. And like I said, I used to regret having not gone to East Timor. And yeah. this is like, this is in October, sorry, November of this um, of 2006, and I, I re-signed on the dotted line on the 5th of December 2006. So we already had my enlistment day. I was all set to go, and this school called me out of the blue. Um, JJ Kale High School, shout out to you. Um, <laughs> just near um, uh, Sydney uh, Airport there yeah. in Mascot, I think. Yeah. And I was presenting and sharing, you know, my stuff in the military and all the rest of it. And a girl got up 
because um, I was constantly, as I said, pushing the question. And the girl got up and said, did you go to East Timor? And I said, no, I didn't. And she said, so you don't believe in fighting for your country? Nice. And yeah, yeah, take that in the face. And I thought, how am I going to answer this one? I thought, well, let's keep these questions going and let's just remove any sense of ego or any energy from this. And, mm. I, and I've since used this technique multiple times in, in heated workplaces and, and often heated discussions. And I just removed the energy and I looked back at it and I said, thank you for that question, but how do you know what I believe? Yeah. Um, yeah. And she said, I'm sorry, I was just asking. I said, look, I thank you. I can't thank you enough for asking that question. I said, to be honest with you, it's something I've always regretted. Um, but please, uh, the teachers, I can see steam coming out of their ears right now. But I said, please uh, don't stop. Don't let that inhibit your curiosity and maintain that curiosity because that's vital. I said, but if a, an old gentleman comes from the RSL to talk about uh, Vietnam, please be careful. They ask questions like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but that's no, that was that was a pretty awesome question. So you really find what your values are. Yeah, and I mean that—that that was obviously raw for you because of the the fact that we all deployed over there, and 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 you, you know, you should have been there, and so that's yeah. a raw thing. But also, I guess I'm a little bit fatalistic. You know, I've got a few mates now who have missed out on certain trips, um, and I don't think my brother would mind me saying that. You know, he regretted not going to Afghanistan at the end of his um, career in the Special Ops Engineer Regiment. Um, and, and I wish he'd had that experience, and I wish some of these other guys had had that experience, but also I'm bloody glad they're here today, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and the problem is you're only ever one decision away from not being here tomorrow with, when it comes to going overseas on operations. So, it's, you know, I think that you have to be a little bit fatalistic about it go, and just go, you know, maybe I didn't have as much free will as I thought I had and mm. that I was being taken down this other road anyway um i thought i thought i had all the ducks lined up and then a decision was made and i might have manifested that decision you know that 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 decision was manifested through my um thought process but perhaps i didn't have much control over it anyway you know and i I think you have to reconcile it like that because otherwise you live in regret for the rest of your life and you let a single thing define you you got you know i said to the other guys the other night if you live to be 86 that's a thousand months Someone's doing the maths on this right now, and it's probably not exactly a thousand months, but it's a th- you have a thousand months of life expectancy, and that is yep. a, a deployment like that is probably six months of a thousand. Like, get over it, move on. It's very true, and it's like it's like guys. I mean, you must get it a lot. I get guys come up to me and often say, "Well, you know, I nearly joined the military. I could have joined the military. Something else happened, and I didn't join the military." But it's almost like they're making excuses for it. And when they meet you, it's almost like these things have been brought up for them again and they kind of wish they had. Yeah. And I stop them right there. I go, listen, to be honest, you're probably better off with the experience of not having. It probably wasn't for you and that's okay. No, well, see, um, see I, I think the other way, mate, because a, a lot of the guys and girls that listen to the Warrior You podcast wanted to join the military, but they found other things. that, that they, yeah. Their reason for doing it just wasn't enough. Like they, they just didn't want it quite enough. And bec- and so because of that, they are my flavor still. They still considered it, you know, yep. so so they're my tribe. You don't have to have gone on mold. You don't have to be in the national counterterrorism team. You didn't have to go to Afghanistan, holy times. You yep. didn't have to go to Timor and Iraq and Somalia and all these places that all these guys have been to still be my flavor. You just have to have exactly. had a curiosity to, to have thought about it. And and, and yeah, and 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 also be open to the experiences that guys like yourself and myself had that could help shape you and make you better than what you were yesterday. Yeah, exactly, hundred percent. I mean, I share that completely. I'm like the fact you didn't go. You're still, you know, I still value you as a human being. I think some guys would probably be like, well, you know, you obviously went tough enough. That's just hyperbole and then rubbish. Yeah. I think. Um, the fact that people were curious, yeah. it was a time in their life and, and life like just like the deployment, you know, yeah. life took a different direction and that's totally fine. And I really thank you for having an interest and maintaining mm. that and being the big enough person to come up and say, hey, this could have been me. Well, more power to you for recognizing yeah. and realizing that. Yeah, and every excuse you come up with is actually a lie. It is. Yeah. It's a lie. If you've got an excuse, it's a lie. So be honest yeah. with yourself and say, it just wasn't the main priority. It was a priority. It just wasn't enough because I'd met this girl and knew I was going to marry her or, you know, I'd just had kids and they were the priority. Like, 
at least put your at least show that your decision making process was the priority and more important to you, but you did have that idea which is justified. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and so with with speaking in particular as an art, because it is an art, right? Oh yeah. Is there a way that that you think that people can get really good at public speaking and and be able to get their content across to an audience, what, what is the best way to do that other than just to do it over and over and over again? But you've studied it. What are some of the tips that you can give people that want to get really great at it? And clearly I'm taking some advice here. Mate. Okay. Um, the best way to, to accelerate it really quickly is to do some training. Um, yeah, go, go see a voice coach, um, spend an hour with them, learn a few techniques. Um, I'm actually planning on using that as a, as a, as a skill, uh, like a, a way in my seminars of, of helping people to become physically empowered as well. It is this incredible confidence builder. You learn that your body is a, like, it's like a speaker and everything vibrates out of you. That will, that will really accelerate your learning. Mm. Um, rehearsal, I can't speak more, more for rehearsing and rehearsing to a blank wall. Um, they say, there's an old saying, and I really like this, is that amateurs, Rehearse so they can't get it wrong. Uh, what is it? So that they don't get it wrong. And professionals rehearse so that they can't possibly get it wrong, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just that. But there's ways to rehearse. So, like I said about the mirror, just don't ever do that in front of a mirror. But you really, you really want to make your presenting conversational because everybody has nerves, whether they acknowledge them or not. Um, and so, one of the best ways to make it conversational is practice your presentation whilst you're going for a run, whilst you're driving in the car walking the dog, just practice it, and that will make it conversational, and it'll also help your memory and help you to learn it. Do you write um, out your presentations and then learn them verbatim, or do you use the same sort of technique that I use, which is I have main points that I wrap into stories? Yeah, kind of very similar to what you do. Um, I then depends on how many points I have. I'm doing a bit of stuff right now for the, the new seminar where I'm I'm getting my thoughts down and getting understanding, but then I just get up and rehearse it and create it as I rehearse and, and then come back and take notes on, on what I rehearsed, what I liked and pieces. Um, there's a couple of kind of emotional bits that I'll, I'll use and so I'll work a little bit harder on those. Um, but by and large, I'd like to just stand up and, and practice it. A speech exists or a presentation exists when it's, when it's presented, everything else, you know, writing down, that's just like reference material, if you like. Are um, you, you need to be able to... Sorry, Craig, are you, are you funny? I do my best. <laughs> what about people... I, what, what about people who think they're going to put jokes into their into their talk or, you know, it might be a presentation for school or for university or they might have a... They might do workshops like you and I do. What, what's some rules around that? All right, that's the best. I was really glad you asked about that. Um, okay, when it comes to telling jokes... Um, there are some really awesome humor techniques I advise you to use that don't require you to tell jokes. Um, one of the ones I do if I say something funny and it looks like, I use save, I think called Saver Lines, which is an old stand-up comedy technique. It works really well. So um, if, some, if I say something funny and one person laughs, I say to them, thank you for that. Would you mind uh, next time I say something funny running around the room so it looks like everyone's having a good time? <laughs> that is pretty good. I do, I, do something, I do something similar when I, I, I say a joke that's clear, clearly a crappy joke and then I look, yeah. ar- I look around in silence at everyone for a couple of seconds and then I go, Jesus, that was so funny when I rehearsed it and that, that always gets a laugh. I think what's great about that as a save alliance is that it's honest and yeah. people love that yeah. and it really cuts through and breaks the ice. Um, Johnny Carson used to use it. If you ever watch any of the old Johnny Carson shows, and he's mm. one of his... He used to always tell bad jokes to get a, to set himself up for a saver line. And one of the classic ones was this audience would look at Bambi through the eye of a sniper's scope. Mm. Which I always thought was fun. Um, one of my mates, a good, a good mate of mine is actually um, Merrick Watts. And I, I started listening to Merrick a lot trying to work out the jokes that he was using because he always gets lots of laughs, especially his stand-up stuff. And I realised people are laughing at him. And yeah. and he's he's creating in such a way that he's making himself a little bit of a you know a, a buffoon, but a smart buffoon that's like here's this thing, and look how silly I am, and they laugh. And when I try and do that, people just look at me and start shaking their heads. He's he is a comedic bloody genius. And I asked him once well, about comedy, and he's like, if you're not funny, don't try to be. <laughs> no, that, that that sounds that's a 
I'll tell you something about Merrick. This is going to turn into the Mez show. I'll tell you something about Merrick is he knows more about military history than than most military historians. He's so well-read, or maybe not military historians, but if you put him in front of you know, a whole heap of soldiers, he'll know more about the military history of their units than most of those guys will. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I know he's very well respected in the unit and uh, mm. he's just one of those guys that everybody liked. I just actually almost disappointed I never bumped into him. Oh, you will. Uh, I'll, intru- I'll introduce you guys. You'd, you'd, you'd kick it off. And he's such, an, he's such a humble sort of down-to-earth guy, you know, and, um, mm. yeah, and, and really does support two commando regiment behind the scenes, I know. Um, but, yeah, he, he yep. gave me some great advice just, just gone recently about, you know, when, you, when you're telling a story – you know, look people in look people in the eye because I've got this tendency to look around the room rather than actually look into someone's bloody soul like he does. You know, um, and I think that was a great bit of advice. And I kicked myself afterwards because I was like, you know what, I had this great story and I didn't do it justice because I didn't I didn't connect with individuals. Yeah, that's it. And looking, I find it's also a great thing. I tell people for nerves when you're telling your presentation. Look at the audience and look them in the eye because they want you to do well. They're often willing you to do well, and you'll find if you find the answers by looking at them and looking in their eyes. That's mm. a really powerful one. And one of the more recent ones I've been reflecting on as well is there is the most important person in that entire audience is one person. And sometimes when you're making a point, if you look at someone in the eye and speak to that one person, everybody feels engaged. Yeah, um, I've heard that. He said that to me as well. He said, "If that one, per- if there's someone in there nodding, and then you start, you start now conversing with that person. You look around the room a bit, but you come back to that person, and you, you get feedback." Yeah, you do. Um, another good one is finish finish a whole sentence with that one per- with a one person. Move on to another person. Finish a whole sentence, and that way, when you when you talk, you go for that length of time for a sentence and you need to move, you just move on to the next one and you work your way through the audience visually um, and that can be a really powerful thing also. It is a beautiful art, isn't it, really? Oh, it's my favourite thing to do. Mm. I once um, booked myself in when I was working on some new material mm. to a Rotary club on my birthday. They gave me three dates and one of them was my birthday and Rotaries are such fun people and, and places to go. They always buy you a beer and dinner. And um, I gave this presentation uh, on my birthday. Like, they would have made a big thing of it being your birthday. And I didn't even tell them because that's not what it was about. It was about me sharing what I love to do more than anything and, and giving that to somebody, but also having the opportunity to give that as my birthday present back to myself. So, mm. um, I wanted, yeah, you've got to love it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, I find I've got an Apple Pencil, right? And Yeah. <laughs> and, I, yeah. And, and I go on stage holding that Apple Pencil. It it can do absolutely nothing at all without an iPad, but I walk around yeah. with it. If I don't have a microphone, I walk around with it in my hand because it distracts me. Or, or maybe it's like a bloody dummy or something for a baby. I'm not sure. But is what is it? What am I doing with that? What is that? What is happening okay. there? That's a blankie. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It's a blankie. That's okay. It's it's really important that you that you know about it as well. Mm. Um, as far as technology goes. Anyway, that sort of made me wonder a little about technology. I've come because there's a lot of new technologies now that actually bring you a little closer to your audience. Yeah. My belief on technology is that every single thing you put up there takes you a step away from them. Mm. Whereas if there's one of you in front of an audience, it's great to have visual. That's obviously an important thing that engages them. But I don't use clickers. Um, I walk up to the um, the laptop each time I want to change and I press the space bar. Easiest bar to find, it changes the slide and it keeps me still engaged. Whereas if I turn look with a red red arrow or a red pointer and click, I'm, I'm removing myself another degree, if you like. Yeah. Um, I really don't like that stuff. I came from the um, – my mentor was um, a Jedi Knight with um, overhead projectors. This guy could flip, look, do, he had a bit of paper over things, a bit of reveal technique, whereas today you just hit a button and an animation had come through. And I just learned that if you take it way back, have just your slide deck, just the minimum. I have as few points on slide decks as I can. I like to have a couple of points that it, and really remove myself from the technology because it's it's you and them. It's it's as hard as it gets. Do I? Yeah, I'm really similar. I use a big black and white photo with three points 
or three or four points um, for yep. a, for a main a main heading in three or four points, and 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 all of those points are a story. Um, yeah, and it works really it works really well, and and it works well because I am I, I guess we're both in the same sort of sphere of influence with the certain people we talk to. And for me, it really is about them leaving their understanding something, taking something away so they can be better. Um, and, yep. and it's very difficult to connect with people these days and have them learn something from you and take it away without giving them something on a sheet. You know, mm-hmm. So I want them to learn a lesson through something that I've done or seen. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we're both pretty similar in, in that. You know, I saw a couple of really good speakers the other day in um, – I'm sure they won't care if I'm talking about it, but uh, in Leif Babin and Jocko Willink at the Echelon. I know. Club. I'm so jealous. I wanted to go to that. I'm definitely – if yeah. they come back next year, I'm got to buy tickets as soon as they're available, man. Got to mortgage your house for it. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so I um, – you know, one thing, one of the techniques they use – and let's not beat around the bush, right? They they do stuff that there's Australians that could present the same stuff, but they don't they don't have the profile. It's all very very similar to what we've what we've done in the military, but and they do a good job of it. And the multimedia extravaganza that it is is worth going for just that. But the interesting thing about Jocko and Leif, for instance, is the technique they use where one they're both up on the stage at the same time, and one talks about a point and a story, and then hands over to the next one. Yeah. Um, but it got predictable, and okay. and the, the the predictability of it started to annoy me, mm. and it felt predictable, and and because it felt predictable, I was like, right, what's the next point? Okay, it's your turn, Life. What's up? What's up now? And then he'd say, it and I'd go, oh, okay, Jocko, what do you got to say to that, mate? And then I just found myself lost in the predictableness of it. It becomes like a duet, I suppose, and no disrespect to these guys because I do oh. love their stuff that they produce. Um, I, I would personally, if I because I've had a I mean, speaking to a few people um, about um, about my new seminar, and uh, I've had a couple of people want to, you know, interested in potentially being speakers. But I'm going to run it. I'm going to be the main person. I'm only going to do that. But if I was presenting it and doing it with someone else, I'd have sections that I'd do where then I'd sit down and let them do it, and, yeah. and then let them get do their bit. And then where there's discussion, the other person who's not up there presenting could chime in and add bit. I find. Um, I do some stuff at the moment with some of my stakeholders. We're out doing briefings about, um, you know, IT solutions that we're delivering, and um, I find that works really well. I let that person get up and do their bit. I chime in on answers and add points as when the discussion starts, but I really let the person doing the speaking have their moment. I, I don't do the duet. Yeah, and I, I find that the, the I found over the two days that the speaker that did the best were the guys that were by or and the girl. Um, who was up there by themselves, and you know they'd obviously yeah. rehearsed it, and they really knew what what they were on on about. Yeah. Um, I think I love about watching American speakers. I've always thought this is that most Americans have their fifteen minutes, their fifteen second soundbite ready to go. That the tone of voice, the way they emphasise and, and put you know energy into their stories, and the way they do it, somehow that seems to just fit with the American accent sometimes, and some of them are just incredible. Why are they so good? Is it because of the inflection in their voice? Is it because they're engaging with the audience? Is it? Is it? What is it? Well, it's interesting because I've seen really, really good people not be so great out here. Um, I remember years ago I saw um, a very famous speaker I wouldn't throw under the bus telling everybody they had to like themselves. You know, you got to tell yourself, I like myself, I like myself, I like myself, and people go, get off! He, I just don't think he knew the, um, knew the audience that well. I, I find it's we're so accustomed to the American accent and it, it can be reassuring to us yeah. sometimes. Were you, were um, you there at the dining in night the year that the Air Force guy got up and gave his keynote? No, I wasn't. Mate, it was terrible. And, and, I, and, and I felt like, sorry, sorry if you're listening, buddy, and it was terrible because you've got Medal of Gallantry winners and Star of Gallantry winners and DSM winners and DSC winners and you had all these people in the audience and then you had this American pilot, this Red Bull pilot get up and – not American, sorry, oh, I've Australia. seen that guy speak. I've yeah. seen the Red Bull pilot speak. Yeah, and he got up and told us, you know, about how he had the most amazing job in the world and it was the most dangerous job and, and, he, and I don't think he gave the audience credit for what they'd done or where they'd been. The most dangerous job in the world. And I, I just, I just, I remember, I was there with Reese Dewar, and and Reese and, wow. and I were looking around the room, and I'm like, 
this guy, this guy's missing a trick. If he had to come up here and gone, hey, I want to thank you guys for your for your service, and you know, I just want to say that the stuff that you've done over in Afghanistan, you know, and just given like put it back on them because it was their night, and then go, hey, I've got this awesome story about this thing I did in this jet, you know, because and then guys are like, yeah, I wanted to be a fighter, yeah, because most people, most people wanted to be a fighter pilot. If you're a special forces guy, you probably thought about being a fighter pilot, just like just like the crowds that I have. You know, I look at those crowds and go, most people in here wanted to be in Special Forces at some point, so all I need to do is tell them how cool it was. Exactly right. Mm. You got He could have got up there and said, who here's ever drunk Red Bull on deployment? Yeah. Well, I've flown planes for him, and it's not that much of a different experience. Boom. Imagine so, that. You, yeah, you just, you just jump straight through and, and share the, your, your humility. Um, I used to jump. I, that- I used to jump out of. I used to jump out of our vehicle at night. When we when we were in the cut down Land Rovers, remember those? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Did they have them? Or you had Bushmasters, probably. I arrived, and we were, I think, one of the in twenty ten were one of the first. Oh, you were. You were. To yeah. go into PMBs. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. really was was looking forward to them, and we still see them floating yeah. around a little bit. But yeah. yeah. In two in two thousand eight, we had the cut down on rotation seven. We had the cut down SRVs, and and the wow. and also yeah, and at night time with our NVGs on, I would get out of our vehicle when we were doing it, like a checkpoint stop order, and I'd creep up to the vehicle in front of me and I'd open their fridge, which is on the back of their Land Rover, and I would and I would hold my shirt open and I would take like four or five of their Red Bulls out and then I would creep back to my vehicle and hand it around to all the guys in, in my car. So we're basically drinking the Red Bull out of all the other cars. And then everyone's like, well, we seem to have run out of Red Bull. And I'm like, our fridge is full. <laughs> I would have given you mine. I'd... I'd- not a Red Bull fan. I drank a things. lot of coffee. Oh mate, I drank a lot Red of Bull, coffee, Red Bull rippets and no explode. I mean, that was the <laughs> that was that was what the war was. Awesome man. I think I think some very high, uh, highly functional, incredible operators who live on that stuff over there and more power to them, man. Holy crap, that's mm. awesome. That stuff. <laughs> they're all yeah. They're probably all yeah. Who knows what their guts looks like today? Hey, so you've seen that Red Bull um, pilot talk? Is he? Is he? Yeah. Good? He's okay. I've been reflecting on that recently. Actually, that evening that I met him, I, I've got um, after getting out, I joined North Bond IRSL, and they were doing a thing called Service Stories. Um, and I don't think they're doing that anymore. It was coming for a lot of gigs down from the ministers of Veterans Affairs uh, at the time, uh, who was in New South Wales. I think his name was Vicky Dominello, and he was a big fan of veterans, and so they got a lot of requests for veterans to present. And I got asked to speak at a thing called Legends of Lamb. Uh, which is an event for Meat Livestock Australia. And um, I, got, I gave a presentation about a day of patrolling through Langar and it hammered down on us in the evening. And it was fairly light. Not, we didn't get, you know, no major things happened, but some guys had some major fails. So it was a bit of fun um, because it was a light evening. It wasn't deep, heavy stuff. And then this guy got up and presented after. And he was good. Like I could see it, was good, but it felt like a canned speech, something he does all the time. Um, it was kind of interesting. I like I like what he said about him being young. He had some pretty good self-effacing stuff. He said, "I was young. I'm, you know, I'm not the tallest guy. You know, so you go out to bars. He said I was the youngest fighter pilot or something, for example. And you get up, yeah. you, know, you go out to bars and you'd meet girls and say, hey, 'Hey, I'm a fighter pilot.' And they'd look at me and they'd just look the other way. You Start know? laughing. He had some really cool self-effacing stuff. I thought. Yeah, yeah. I met a guy the other day. Um, part of that Echelon Front crew, and he's flown F-22s and F-35s, and I said, that must have been the best job in the world. And he goes, no, man, this is the best job in the world. And I was like, yeah, okay, you lost me, dude. Like, come on. <laughs> just just tell me that it was the best job in the world so that I can walk away going, that dude is a legend. But you've just told me that you speaking in front of us is the best job in the world. Okay. Um, I reckon speaking in front of large groups is the best job in the world, for sure. <laughs> flying an F-35 would be pretty cool. <laughs> It would be. There's a lot of. There'd be a lot of positives. Yeah, it'll be all right. Yes. And so, what are you working on at the moment, Craig? Um, I'm working on a seminar series. This was um, come out of my work with um, with the guys at Sydney Trains. Mm. Uh, I decided the best thing I could do uh, is expand on my resilience course. I was very successful with mail, so I'm going to market it to men initially, um, and it's a two day workshop called uh, Reclaim Your Power. Um, in which I talk about um, five uh, five pillars, if you like, uh, for want of a better term, five areas that people can develop themselves in, which I think will give them a fairly comprehensive um, 
toolkit to be able to really create some, some significant change in their lives. Yeah, and if and if someone's listening to this and they want to get you into their organisation to help with resilience, how can they mm-hmm. get in contact with you? Uh, they can get in contact with me via um, my email address, uh, info at changeseminars, or one word, dot com. Yep. No worries. We'll um, have that in the show notes as well. And you've got a website too? I do. Changeseminars.com is the uh, the main one at the moment. Uh, you can get my my speaking at askaskcraigball.com. Great. Awesome. So there you have it. If you want to reach out to Craig Ball, get him to come to your organization uh, or your group and work on resilience, then reach out to him. All of the details will be in the show notes. Um Mate, I want to thank you very much, Craig, for being a brilliant guest on the Warrior You podcast. And I'm sorry we didn't hook up in Sydney, but when I get there next, let's um, let's collab, let's collab. I think that's what that's all the amazing, that's man. what the influencers say these days, man. Let's collab. And um, <laughs> mate, I wish you all the best for 2020. Uh, people like people like you, I think, is what the world needs with leadership and resilience. You know, someone out there, positive, positive role model you know, pushing their way forward and just showing everyone, you know, let's let's get into this and let's make leadership an art, let's make resilience an art, let's make speaking an art so that we can get others to see how great it is and then maybe in their little team meetings, you know, they're more effective and just make everything um, better for everyone. Agreed. And if they can just enjoy it more, like life, if we lighten up and have a little bit more fun with ourselves and the processes we have to go through that could otherwise be difficult, it's just so much easier. Yeah, man. Thanks for being on the podcast, brother. Pleasure. Thanks. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page, and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just the physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. And just click on the training tab. Remember, we're going to be in Brisbane in 2020, in July, for a massive day of leadership and resilience training workshop and live podcast. So uh, keep it locked in your diary. Righto. Thanks for listening and live a life worth living. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.